When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, we're Dead Romantic. You listen to Jay Scott on the Hug Rocks. Uh, look forward to our album comes out on the 3rd of September, and hopefully we'll see you out there in the world soon. We're Dead Romantic. We're Dead Romantic again. Peace. <laughs> everybody, it is Jay Scott. Welcome back to another episode of The Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Hope everyone's staying cool out there. It's a heat wave all over. I know I've mentioned here in a couple other previous episodes, it's like 115 in certain areas of California and Arizona and Texas. Texas has got to conserve energy, you know, with the extreme heat over there. Chicago, where I think we're in the mid-90s this weekend, so... Grab a tall, cool one, ice cold, tall, cool one, some lemonade or some ice cream. Well, no, ice cream will melt. Just stick with the cold beer and you should be fine. like to remind everybody that we are part of the Pantheon Podcast Network, the music network of podcasts, and you can catch my podcast with new and old episodes. Go check that out. Subscribe to us wherever you do podcasts. Write us a review as well. We do appreciate it. On that Pantheon podcast platform, you can find them at PantheonPodcast.com. Follow them on Twitter at Pantheon Pods and on Facebook, Pantheon Podcasts. Just like you can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. And coming soon, the Hook Rocks Instagram page, which is going to feature 
kind of a daily diary of just thoughts on music and like one minute or one minute and a half snippets of what I'm listening to or what I think of a certain tour or a show that I just saw the night before. So we're going to see where that goes. It should be pretty interesting. Also wanted to let everybody know happy Father's Day to all of you, all the rock and roll dads out there. And speaking of rock and roll dads, I've got a fellow rock and roll dad on the show tonight. And we've kind of, we've had our sons on our podcast before. Uh, I've had my son on twice. I think he's had his son, I know, at least once. Um, And also inside the podcast community, the rock music podcast community, my next guest is known as a great dude, a legend, always easy to work with and very helpful in getting new podcasts you know, started or you know, giving them some things to think about as well. And I'd like to welcome in Mr. Sonny Pooning. What's going on, Jay? How's it going? Thanks for all the nice words there. Yeah, I give you a hard time a lot, so I figured I'd say something nice about you. Uh, yeah, because that's not going to last long, right? Because as soon as we start talking Maiden, we're going to have a problem. Yeah, yeah. I'm st- I don't even want to go into it because your 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 thoughts on the song Revelations on Peace of Mind still still scars me to this day. So <laughs> all opinions. Sonny is the co-host of the Grown Up Rock podcast and also a co-host of the podcast Rock City. Uh, you can catch them talking about Kiss and then Grown Up Rock. Kind of a similar format. They do things a little differently. They do a lot of new bands like I do and some, you know, rating different albums from different bands. I know they're on a Van Halen run right now, so that's always interesting. But they do offer great topics, great format, so check those podcasts out as well. Yeah, we just hit our 200th on uh, Growing Up Rock, and it's been a good ride. You know, we you do a lot more for newer artists, especially um, sharing their music, et cetera. We we pepper that in a little bit. We, you know, there'll be once in a while where we'll be all heat, all eclipse because there's bands that we absolutely love that nobody's heard of. And every once in a while we'll get an interview, but usually we try to pepper them in with classic rock just to, we're trying to get that classic rock fan to open up their ears a little bit, just like you are. Yeah, that is a struggle. And I, you know, I've even come to the conclusion that I think it's time to move away from the classic rock fan are worried about what the classic rock fan listens to because you kind of become set in your ways at this point. And not everyone is like you and I, um, in that we, you know, like to talk about new music and like to listen to new music. So I know that's a struggle for people that, you know, have their ACDC, they got their Led Zeppelin, they got their Rolling Stones, whatever it is. And, you know, they kind of, they kind of got their friends. Those are their friends and they're sticking with them. And it's hard to bring in new friends when you're, when you're older and set in your ways. Yeah, it depends on what you do with the music, right? For me, it's a, a release, it's a uh, experience, and I want to experience new things. For a lot of people, the music takes them back to a place where, you know, the good old days or when they met their significant other or when their kids were young. So they don't want to lose those memories, and they think that if they start listening to Blackberry Smoke, they're going to forget how they felt when they first heard Zeppelin, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that too. You know, it's like they're very territorial. They're also, I mean, Mr. Scary I had on, she's a DJ out in Boston. I had her on probably about a little over a month ago and she brought up a good point how rock fans are really like 
set in their ways. They don't want to change. They don't like when people change. They're very judgmental on what people do. And it's and when you look at it, is it, it is very true, right? Everyone's got their own opinions. Well, everyone has their own opinions now because of social media, right? That's the platform that people use now to make their comments on an article or make a comment on a, on a photo or whatever. Everybody's got to say something. But rock has always been like that. It's very you know, you've got to do it the right way, you're not good, or people view things differently, and it's it's kind of very snobby. It's a snobby community. And I fell into that a little bit, and I do fall to it now, because there'll be a point in time if Striper releases a new album. I want it to sound like Striper. I don't go to Striper to hear Nirvana, right? So, not that Michael Sweet ever does that, but reality of the situation is, if I go to an Italian restaurant, I want to eat Italian food. If I wanted a burger, I'd go to a burger joint. So I get to that point too, but I'm willing to try all kinds of different food. But I got a best friend that all he eats is steak and potatoes. So, you know, to each their own, I guess. Very true. Very true. Our next topic is an interesting one. And it's been a topic that I've been kind of mulling around with and playing with here for a few months because I think it's really interesting because you can make the claim that inside of the United States – this area is the birth of rock music, and that area is Northern California, the Bay Area. When you think of the Bay Area, Northern California with music, you automatically think of Haight-Ashbury, and you think of the counterculture and the hippie movement back in the 60s during the Vietnam War, and acts like CCR, which was in a suburb of San Francisco or formed in a suburb of San Francisco, came from there. Kate Ashbury saw the likes of Janis Joplin and Jefferson uh, Airplane, right? And, uh, you know, who else? Jimi Hendrix played a lot in Northern California, which led to Monterey Pop Festival, which was the first American performance by Hendrix, as as well as The Who. You also had The Stones at Altamont, which was a free concert a few months after Woodstock, a legendary free concert that ended up in violence because of the presence of the Hells Angels, but that was about 300,000 people there, and that was free. Keep that in mind. So those moments in the 60s, late 60s, uh, really defined the direction of rock music back then. You know, I mean, I know there was the British invasion that came over, and, of course, Ed Sullivan had a huge impact on rock music. But the actual birth of it, I believe, really came from that era, and it spawned bands that we're going to talk about today, like Night Ranger and Y&T. And even though they formed in Los Angeles in 1981, Metallica calls San Francisco home. And that is where we're going to go in the journey for this this podcast. Yeah, San Francisco is a little interesting because it, like LA is a different world to us. I lived in LA for a while and I can understand why it's a different world. Like when in the 80s, when Sleaze Rock was getting heavy, heavy, heavy in LA, San Francisco almost fought against it. It was like, no, I think we're going to stick with thrash maybe, right? We're going to go our own way. And it's always been a little more gritty, classic type rock than it has been really sleaze rock. There's not a lot of sleaze bands that came out of San Francisco. All the stuff you're talking about obviously happened before we were both born. But yeah, it just definitely did give birth to the Neil Sean's and the journeys of the world and, you know, the Montroses of the world and that kind of thing. Uh, No doubt that we got to experience. 
Yeah, in the band that I did mention now, but you know, you, you talked about Neil Sean and his involvement with Santana, which is another Northern California band too, as well. But you could just see, like, with the timeline of all these events and these bands coming out of there, what type of music was coming out? It, like you said, it was a little more classic rock, but it was a little more mature. You know, you say sleaze rock, which is a great term because L.A. was really known for that. You know that uh, Hollywood Boulevard, Sunset Boulevard. You know, you know, with the whiskey go go and the rainbow and the reputation since Van Halen broke in that area, that which led to Motley Crue and Rat and Quiet Riot and all those bands. It was a totally different ball game down in Southern California, and many people think Southern California is like a different state. You know, for those like myself who've been there several times, Sunny, of course, lives there, and you know, it's just it's different than. The Northern California. And when you look at the tone, you look at the style of music of what came to be in the late 70s and in the 80s with 80s music like Journey, like Sammy Hagar, like Montrose, like Night Ranger or Y&T, those bands had a, had a had a style. And although it's unique to that area, it's also similar in style, right? I mean, when you listen to those bands, you can all tell they came from Northern California. Yeah, and Northern California radio stations at the time are very, very loyal local. So you would have thought that Night Ranger was the biggest band in the world, the amount it was getting played on the radio here. Right, and I think, you know, the L.A.s do that, the Chicago's do that, the Dallas's do that, the Pennsylvania's do that, the New Jersey's do that. But here, there's so many places to see bands live back in the 80s and 90s and today. They're small and big. They're all over the place. You can play arenas here. You can play stadiums here. And everything is within an hour, hour and a half. So people love the live experience here. That's why all those classic live things happened here. It's interesting when you look at the history of that era. You know, to have Monterey be the first time Hendrix played in front of a you know US audience as well as the Who that's a big deal. You know that was 1967 2 years before Woodstock and many think that Woodstock may have not happened without Monterey Pop because based on the 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 want and the need of the crowd and the audience they knew they were going to have an uh, an audience a big audience in Woodstock. And of course, you know being close to New York you know, on the East Coast, they didn't really have a festival like that at that time. And the groundwork and the parameters of that festival really, really started with with Monterey. Yeah, and a lot of that stuff, obviously, all over the states happens in the summer. The beauty about here is the weather is so great that you could do it in October, November. It's not going to, it's not Chicago. It's not going to snow, right? You could... You could have an outdoor festival in February. It wouldn't matter here. And I think that just creates more opportunity for bands uh, to be out there. And, you know, a lot of these Bay Area bands I saw so many times live because I didn't have to wait until they were, until they were connected to a tour. You know how many times I've seen Tesla? I've probably seen Tesla 40 times. They not only opened for everybody when they were here or they headlined here, they'd be playing clubs in between dates. That's another band that people people don't really know that they are from California. Um, I mean, I've heard people say, oh, they're from Texas or they're from Oklahoma. But Tesla is a Northern California band that when we talk about the sleaze rock era or the, 
the L.A. movement of music, they were really outside of that. So when people call them a hair band, it's like, what are you talking about? They never teased their hair. They never had any of that stuff. Yeah, that, uh, and I know uh, you also have some issues with the term hair metal, and I've heard it before. And, of course, I actually don't have a problem with it. Uh, I It, it uh, describes a time frame and style of music that I love. And I just, when somebody says, well, that's hair metal, I'm like, oh, then they must have screeching guitars and incredible vocalists because that's what most of it was, you know, until you got to the late 80s. Well, I get upset when someone says it sounds like hair metal. You know, that to me, I, I, get, I get annoyed with that because hair metal doesn't have a sound, right? It doesn't. I mean, it, it sounds like a rock band from the 80s that came out of L.A. or came from that era. Your hair doesn't determine how you play guitar or how the band sounds. So I get really annoyed when someone goes that direction because it's like, what are you talking about? There's no, there's no sound. Hair metal doesn't have a sound or, or the hairspray doesn't have a sound or the teased hair doesn't have a sound. So, yeah, that's where I really, you know, and I think it, what it does actually is it, it, it lessens the musicianship of those bands. And there are some incredible players that came out of that era and that were part of that era that could shred and play better than most bands today or most bands that have come out since then. Yeah. I just remind people it's melodic rock. It's what you're hearing is memorable melodic rock. That's why it got stuck in your brain. I get it. Poison or not aficionados of their instruments, but I want action tonight is a catchy tune, whether you like it or not. Very true. Very true. I mean, it had the hook, right? I mean, all those songs had melody and a hook that pulled you in. And I don't care what they looked like. If the music wasn't good, that music would not have been dominant for over a decade. And let's not, you know, and let's remember, let's not forget that compared to other eras of music since then, there has not been a style of music that has been dominant like that in rock and roll since those days of the eighties. Yeah. The grunge didn't last that long. And then, you know, what did you want to, what do you call disturbed alternative metal? I don't even know or, what or we new call metal it. Or something like that. Yeah. I love disturbed, but I don't even know how to, you know, I can't compare them to the stuff I was listening to in the eighties. I just like it because it's so aggressive. Um, I either like aggressive music or I want happy music. I really don't want depressing music. And that's why I had an issue with the grunge era, which everybody had an issue with that. And in the 90s, the barrier music scene wasn't that great. Like when grunge came, stuff around here, there wasn't much going on. Yeah, it's almost like, uh, to quote our friend Zeus from Shout Out Loudcast, it's almost like rock and roll had a bad draft or a couple bad drafts, <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Where they were, they were, you know, drafting like the Bears, you know, Mitch Trubisky and, uh, you know, Mitch Trubisky, the, the quarterback that kind of did nothing or kind of was a, a draft bust for, for the Chicago Bears. It's kind of like what rock and roll was. You know, all these bands. I mean, sure, there was, you know, some good stuff that came out. And um, I'm not saying there wasn't. But as a whole, there was, there was no scene. There was no movement of rock for a good 10, 15 years. Yeah, what you were seeing here in the Bay, and I remember distinctly standing on Broadway, I'm in front of the stone, and I'm looking at one side of the street, and this is probably like 88, looking at one side of the street, and it's all spandex and leather and big hair and, you know, 
uh, girls with high heels and blah, blah, blah. And then I was looking across the street and it was all jeans, t-shirt, spikes, thrash guys. So here it went from the melodic metal I was listening to, to thrash because of Metallica, right? And everybody was coming. Thrash bands were going nuts out of here after Metallica got big. Um, around here, grunge was not that big in my opinion. Well, yeah, you know, it took a while for grunge to get going. I mean, the the birth of grunge is like the late 80s, right? I mean, that stuff was going yeah. on, you know, way before it became mainstream. Uh, you know, when you look to Seattle, you, God, I remember watching, remember Radio 1990? What is that? It was like a, a show on the USA Network. I think the host was Catherine Kinley or something like that. And... She used to do it was like on, it was on Wednesday nights or Tuesday nights on USA Network on cable, and it was an hour show, and they would show hard rock, heavy metal videos. And I remember she did a little like five minute expose on the movement in Seattle with these bands like Soundgarden and and some other stuff that was going on, and it was interesting. You know, I was like, oh well, that's never. I'm like, that's never going to take off. That doesn't have any melody. Doesn't have any. It's just. You know, it's just really dreary, and sure enough, you know, several years later, it was everywhere. And, you know, keep in mind, I went to high school during the grunge era, and my brother went to the went to high school during the, you know, the, the glam metal stage. And the way the girls looked in high school during his period of, of going to class versus mine, I would trade any day to go to school during the glam metal years. Yeah, it was because uh, my high school years are 83 to 86. And uh, man, what a perfect time to go to high school for the music that I listened to. What a perfect place to be for because that music was getting so hot. It was all over the charts. And the beauty of this place, like I said, you can see a lot of you can see a lot of shows because uh, a big act will come to town. Let's say, you know, let's say it's Van Halen, right? They would play San Francisco, Sacramento possibly Mountain View at the shoreline and then play in Fresno, possibly play in Reno and then play in LA. I can get to all those places within four to five hours and some of those less than two. Wow. So I could see them five times if I wanted to, if I was a hardcore fan, there was a lot of bands I did that for. So I would see them back to back to back nights. And you just can't do that very many places, right? Like the Midwest. Yeah. Everybody drives, but everything's so far apart. You can't be driving all over the place trying to catch a, a band again, and it's like you're seriously on a road trip if you're doing that. I'm coming home every night. Yeah, the only place you can really do that in Chicago is Milwaukee, which is about an hour and 15 minutes away from, from Chicago. And, yeah, I go up there for a lot of concerts. In fact, I'm talking to my son because he wants to go see Guns N' Roses and Mammoth, and I don't want to do it at Wrigley Field because the traffic around Wrigley and getting in and out of Wrigley is so ridiculous that I'm like, why don't we just go to the Saturday show up in Milwaukee? Get a hotel, stay there for the night, you know, we don't have to rush back and forth. It sounds like a plan to me. Yeah, where are they playing at uh, Milwaukee? They're playing at the Brewer Stadium? Uh, they're Middle playing Park? American Family Amphitheater. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, that's nice. That's a nice uh, venue there. Yeah, so I think we're going to do that. But, yeah, it's not that far of a drive. In fact, if you go down to Wrigley on a night of an event, whether it's a ball game or a concert, you're going to – if you leave – my house at the same time and two people, one person goes to Milwaukee, one person goes to Chicago, they're going to get there in their seats 
at about the same amount of time. Yeah. So that's just crazy. But continuing with the conversation, the two bands that really kind of took off as a result of the Haight-Ashbury movement was CCR and Jefferson Airplane, which featured Grace Slick and, of course, John Fogarty from CCR. But the music from each of those artists, both played at Woodstock, was the soundtrack of that movement, of that counterculture movement, of the protest movements in the 60s, protesting the war. I always do laugh whenever I hear a politician play the song Fortunate Son when they get up on stage, which is basically about you know rich kids getting out of the draft for whatever reason, and, and the ones that couldn't had to go fight in the war. And I always like, do you, do you know the lyrics of the song? Do you know what the song is about? But... They were considered the Beatles of America because they had catchy songs, you know, good riffs, good hooks, and if you listen to them today, it really sounds just as good. And Jefferson Airplane had Grace Slick. They were a little bit more psychedelic, but they still had a great following. And I don't know the farther we get away from the era of that of that band or the era of of, of that music, the singer Grace Slick is in my opinion, less and less appreciated by today's generation and the generation before it. Yeah, Jefferson Airplane's a tough one, right? Because they went and they did what everybody wanted Van Halen to do is change their name. They go from Airplane to Jefferson Starship to Starships. I think they ended up losing their identity. I don't think, like my generation, like I don't know Grace Lick that well, to be honest. So there's no way the next generation's going to know her. Yeah, they changed their name like three times. They were Jefferson Airplane, then they were Airplane, then they were Starship, and then they were Jefferson Starship. It was weird, right? They yeah, and they and they kept changing their style of music. Like, you know, this this was a band that was part of that movement, part of that hippie movement. I mean, you know, they were at Woodstock, and here they are singing a song for the Weekend at Bernie's soundtrack. Nothing's gonna stop yeah. us now. Or Sarah, which is completely removed from what they were all about. So I don't know what happened to that band, or I don't know where, you know, what direction, or why they decided to go in that direction. Maybe they had some new players in there. I know Mickey Thomas um, was the singer who has a tremendous voice, but they really did change. So you're right. It's very hard to, to identify with them because of that. And they are forgotten, I believe, in large part because of that. Because sometimes people don't make that connection that the band that sang, and I can't believe I'm going to say this on my show, We Built This City. I'm cringing right now because it's like the worst song ever. I love that song. You it's would, about San Francisco. You would love that song. You would love that song. <laughs> if you're not familiar, for those listening, if you're not familiar with Sonny's music takes, what what he just said about We Built This City defines what what uh, his music takes are all about. <laughs> oh. So you don't like the song Revelations by Iron Maiden, but you like We Built This City. That's right. You're failing at life, Sonny. You are failing at life. <laughs> no, and I think what ends up happening with, you know, songs like We Built This City, first of all, it is a catchy tune. I get it. It it's is, cheesy. yeah. I love Mickey Thomas's voice. That's number one. And then number two, so, you know, Sarah and stuff like that. But number two, it's hometown, right? And just like you being in Chicago, if there's a Chicago band that come, came up with some cheesy song in 1985, it got played on the radio so much that you just end up loving it. Like, I love 
the Journey 80s songs, God, I love them all. Right? It's not just uh, Don't Stop Believing. That's all anybody knows. I'm like, oh, my God, that's not even in the top 10 for me. Oh, yeah. Journey's got such a huge catalog that people don't really appreciate. Yeah, changing your name several times. I think it's, you know, and we're guessing here, but if you want to change your sound, maybe there's somebody at the record company saying, well, look, nobody's going to give you a shout on radio if you're going to put Jefferson Airplane on the front of the album because they're going to think it's psychedelic because they're going to throw it a- throw it across because rock music or pop music is going in right now. So if you're going to go that route, you're going to have to change your name. They won't even remember who's playing. Don't worry about that. You'll get played on radio. So there's somebody in their ear saying, if you want to be taken seriously, you are going to have to change your name. If you want to change your sound. Wasn't the guitar player also part of uncle Jesse's band on full house. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> I think you was the, the, the Jefferson Airplane or the or the Starship Band of the Starship Band. I think I remember watching Full House as a kid because Uncle Jesse had his band and the guitar player of Starship was was the guitar player of that band. I'm like, oh, well, that's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that. One of the, one of those. I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't watch Full House though. One of those pieces of use, useless information that, uh, for whatever reason, is stuck in my head, but. Um, after CCR and Jefferson Airplane, the next bands to really make their mark from the Bay Area were Santana, as we mentioned, with with Neil Sean, and a little bit farther along was the Doobie Brothers. Um, in my opinion, the Doobie Brothers, for me as a kid, defined Northern California because you know, I was born in 75, and my parents really loved the Doobie Brothers, so I heard that a lot in, in the house, like... Um, uh, listen to the music and China Grove always in in play in the car or on the stereo when I was when I was younger. You know, taking it to the streets, what a fool believes, which I think they won a Grammy for. But both those bands were also instrumental in influencing those that came after. You know, Santana was a phenomenal guitar player, is a phenomenal guitar player, is regarded as one of the most influential guitar players of all time, and. Journey, which started, which uh, Greg Raleigh, the keyboard player, and Neil Sean left Santana to begin the band Journey. And you can argue that Journey is the biggest band outside of Metallica. Yeah, I would I would say Journey is bigger than Metallica to come out of that era because mass appeal, Journey has more mass appeal. Yes, Metallica is still selling out stadiums. I get all that. First of all, Journey's been doing it 20 years longer, right? And... There's just, uh, my my wife loves Journey. She, she couldn't name a Metallica song. She couldn't make it through a Metallica song, right? So that's one thing. Uh, Santana, because of the Latin population and Hispanic population here, Santana making it big was huge for the culture that was getting built here. And it defines the diversity that happens in the Bay Area. And there's absolutely no doubt. I don't, I know some Santana music. It wasn't rocking enough for me. And even when Raleigh and Sean went to go to Journey, you hear a couple of those first Journey albums. They're too jam bandy for me. Like very, I want very progressive. Four, yeah, I want four minute pop songs. Right, that's what I want, and that's what Journey became. That's why I connected so much. Um, the Doobie Brothers. It almost felt like CCR ended, and Doobie Brothers picked up where they left off because it does doesn't have as much bite. It's a little smoother, but I like both bands for the songwriting and then just kind of 
straightforward kind of, it's almost like, I don't want to say country rock, but it's, it's not super gritty, but it's nice rock you can listen to with great vocals. Yeah, it's radio-friendly rock. And what impressed me the most about the Doobie Brothers, and you can look this up on YouTube, when What a Fool Believes broke for them and became one of their biggest hits, those guys playing that live, there's a lot of harmonies in that song, right? When you listen to that record, you're like, wow, there's a lot of harmonies, great melody. They nail it live. like, And there's no auto-tune. There's no, you know, <laughs> there's nothing back then. And those guys are doing it. And whether you like the Doobie Brothers or not, whether, you know, you're a metal fan or hard rock fan and the Doobie Brothers are not, you know, your taste, they are great musicians and you've got to give it to them for being able to play pretty much exactly how those albums sound whenever they played live. Yeah, and it's interesting. I've, I've never got to see CCR. I was too young. But I did end up seeing the Doobie Brothers twice, once with my Michael McDonald, once without. But uh, CCR is one of those bands that, you know, if you were to ask me, you know, what kind of music you listen to, and it's like Whitesnake, Rap, Motley Crue, Kiss, you know, I'll just start naming bands. And then I say, yeah, I really like CCR. I really like Jimi Hendrix. It's like, how is that possible? Well, the area I grew up in, they were on radio. That's how it's possible. <laughs> right? So radio, rock radio here was huge. Right? And so uh, we listened to radio all the time. Uh, did you have a lot of rock radio stations in Chicago? Yeah, we had WMET, which was 95.5, which was the go-to station when I was a kid. And oddly enough, we didn't have a rock station here for a good year and a half up until recently with the same 95.5. Because after they changed formats, they went to like a new wave jazz station for years. It was WNUA it became. And it would play like your Lee Rittenhours and all those kind of jazzy, new wave jazz players and stuff. And I was driving to an appointment and I saw a billboard that said 95.5 Chicago's rock station. I'm like, no way. I'm like, 95.5 was WMET. So I clicked over on it. And it's not just classic rock they play. They play new rock. They play stuff from the 90s and in the 2000s as well as 80s and 70s. So it is so far from what I've heard. I mean, you can hear ACDC flick of the switch, which is not played on classic rock. And then you can hear, you know, Linkin Park and then Greta Van Fleet in, the, in a half hour which is awesome. Like that to me is a great radio station. Um, but we had MET, we had the loop, we had WLS and we had WCKG was, which was classic rock. And then we also had a station that came about called WVVX RPM, real precious metal. And the funny thing about that station was it came on at seven o'clock cause the radio signal wasn't strong enough. And in the day it was a Spanish speaking station and at night, it was a metal station, and they were on from 7, seven at night till either 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, and it was great because I would be in, like, grade school, and I would take my stereo and put it on the other side of the bed. My mom would say goodnight to me, whatever, and then i put the headphones on and run it through the side of the bed that was up against the wall, and I would just fall asleep with my headphones on. Yeah, here, KFOG, KRQR. Um, and then there was uh, KOME, and there was a high school station here called KVHS, which was the local high school that would just play rock, and they were playing 
deep cuts of Metallica and Megadeth. And that's where I hear, heard a lot of Y&T and Night Ranger because it's just high school kids spinning what they like instead of, you know, some big radio station that's got to, you know, pay to play or whatever they're doing to uh, get on the get on the radio. Luckily, in the Bay Area, cable was already here. So I we had MTV early. So the minute MTV hit the scenes, I was all about MTV. I listened to the radio in the car, and then I went from MTV straight to cassettes, and I even stopped listening to the radio, to be honest. Yeah, radio, rock radio had a huge impact on people our age, right? I mean, it was yeah. the place oh, to yeah. go, and then MTV came on. And I just, you know, I forget who I had this conversation with recently where, you know, rock radio was what broke a lot of bands, and then MTV started to rise in popularity and really latched on to the L.A. scene and bands like Def Leppard and, and uh, geez, who else? You know, Judas Priest and Van Halen. It became where MTV was breaking the bands before rock radio was. So you really listened to, the, to MTV more, especially like Headbangers Ball. And then they had that show, like, I think it was called The Hard 30 or the hard 60, which was on at three o'clock in the afternoon. And I'd rush home from school to catch videos. It really became that thing where if it wasn't an MTV, it really wasn't worth listening to. And and they made the band visual, right? So now, you know, when you get the Vince Neils on stage or whatever, and you know, Vince gets to get old too, right? I get it, but it's not my fault that he showed, he sold his visual look in, along with his singing and whatever else he was doing. And honestly, it was a visual look that sold it. So now if he doesn't look the same, it is what it is, right? And MTV kind of made him this visual darling, to be honest. Yeah, you started listening with your eyes as well as your ears, you know? So that was very important. And, And again, if MTV doesn't exist, I don't know what that movement looks like in terms of Motley Crue and Rat and Quiet Riot and all those bands that came after that. Does that music exist? That's a that's a great question, right? I mean, because it was so. I mean, they were they were both kind of partners in that. One couldn't live without the other, you know. When you think of early MTV and how they latched on to hard rock and metal during that period, and and yes, Def Leppard and all those bands were considered metal. I just did a, I just did an episode on the US Festival, which was a huge, which was given a huge platform by MTV. And after that show, that was another thing, you know, that, you know, we're getting a little bit off topic, but that spawned that movement with those bands that played on that festival. Um, But getting back to the Bay Area, the Northern California bands, you know, after the Doobie Brothers and after Santana, Journey started to rise in their popularity. They still hadn't brought in Steve Perry yet. They didn't bring him until I think it was Infinity, which was the first album that he was on. Um, and also another band too that is forgotten was the band that originally had Sammy Hagar as the vocalist, which was Montrose. So those two bands too were, were, I mean, Montrose never became what Journey was. They had some, you know, big hits like Rock Candy and Bad Motor Scooter, but Journey really took off from that period from like the, the 77, 78 into like the mid eighties Montrose, unfortunately had a great debut album. Their next album had a couple of great songs. It wasn't as strong as their debut, but they kind of fizzled. And then Hagar ended up starting his own solo career. Yeah. Journey was monstrous. It still is. 
right? I've seen Perry live. I've seen Audrey live twice. I've seen Just Got Soto live with Journey. I've seen Arnell's a couple of times. Journey has not lost a step. And that songwriting with Jonathan Cain and Neil Sean is, it's just, it's untouchable. And they wrote some incredible songs that will really stand the test of time. And when you are from here and somebody says, oh yeah, isn't Journey from there? Like you get proud that you are from the area where Journey was established, right? And the other thing about these bands, these bands that you're talking about, like Montrose and Journey and stuff, they're all friends, right? They, a lot of times shared managers, they will, Journey will be playing, Sammy will show up, Sammy will be playing, Neil Sean will show up. Like that's kind of stuff happens here all the time because I don't, I'm sure they felt like they were in competition, but it really does feel like a little bit of a happy family. Well, Hagar and Sean did that HSAS album in the early 80s, too, you know? Yeah. Um, which is a great record, a uh, very underrated record. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, when, when Steve Perry joined, he came, I think it was from Fresno. Um, you changed the face of the band. There was a transition period. If you look at Evolution, you look at Infinity, you look at those albums, you know, it's a band that's still trying to find their sound with Steve Perry as a vocalist. And you know, they still are cranking out some great you know, songs like Lights and Love Touching and Squeezing and Wheel in the Sky, um, Anytime, Feeling That Way, which are my favorites from Journey. Um, but those albums, you know, everyone talks about Escape and everyone talks about Frontiers, but I love Infinity and I love Evolution. Yeah, I, I like those uh, albums also. I love Raised on Radio, right? And I get it. It's more polished journey. But some of my favorite songs are like Stone in Love, which is a little bit earlier, Be Good to Yourself. Like some of those really polished pop hits that almost matched some of the stuff that Perry did solo afterwards. Um, those really hit home for me because I'm like in high school and I am all about the melody. And uh, man, that's Steve Perry's, that first solo album is even awesome. Street Talk. Yeah, I mean, Oh Sherry was such a huge MTV hit and a great video. Uh, it was a band that really came during the, the the climb of popularity for MTV. I don't think MTV had peaked yet, but they were one of the bands. I mean, I remember their Escape Tour that they had the live concert, I, I believe, which was on MTV on Saturday night or something like that. Uh, the album Frontiers, which had a huge video with Separate Ways and Faithfully. Frontiers could have been such a big album if they didn't give some of those songs to soundtracks. Ask the Lonely, Only the Young, uh, God, what other songs? Uh, the song that was on the Tron soundtrack, and there's another one I can't think of. But there was, you know, there were two songs that just were powerful, powerful songs that, for whatever reason, didn't make the album. They gave them to soundtracks, and if those were on Frontiers, I believe it would have been just as big as Escape. Yeah, the the fighting started then. There was a, you know, Neil Sean push and pull with Steve Perry about who has control, who makes the final decision. And, you know, around here, it was pretty public that it slowly went from Neil to Steve. Steve leaves, and then he's like, I'm not coming back unless I am the power. So now there's all kinds of decisions getting made that maybe Neil's not super happy with. And there was always that push and pull. And, you know, let's put it this way. P Perry's a balladeer, right? So when you're the good rock guitar player, you know, what, what, what am I supposed to do? 
right? <laughs> you're, you're crooning out there. Every girl's falling all over you. What am I supposed to do? True. true. Right. So, yeah. yeah. So he found his way. Neil found his way around it. And some of those little guitar fills and the swells he was putting on added a lot of flavor. And I think it helped that he came from that jam band, jazz type background that knows how to kind of fill in open spaces. And it really sent it to a new level. If, you know, if they could have got along, oh my God, I can only imagine the albums we would have got from like 85 to 2000. And they would have been the biggest band on the planet probably. Well, yeah. I mean, people also forget too that Don't Stop Believing wasn't overplayed until recently. Right. Since like the year 2000. Right. I mean, but it was a hit. It was a big song. But Open Arms was really the big song on Escape. And Don't Stop Believing now has kind of overthrown Open Arms as the biggest song on Escape. But that wasn't the case. And, you know, when bands started using it as their, you know, their their championship moniker or the run to a championship or when it's on the Sopranos, you know, the last scene in the, in the Sopranos, it just adds to that mystique of that song and that's why, you know, it's probably the number one song that, that Journey or that is played on radio or wherever by Journey. But it wasn't like that. I mean, you think of that Escape album, there's no song for me that instantly takes me back to summer when I was a kid, like Stone in Love. That opening riff by Neil oh. Sean is just, it just grabs you instantly. And I can just sit there and I can start to smell like when I was at the beach or when I was at, you know, a party with friends or whatever. It just has that ability for me. I love that song so much. It absolutely drives me nuts when somebody says they love Journey and has never heard Stone in Love. Right? I'm like, oh, my God, dude, where have you been? That's such a great song. <laughs> it, it, I, and, I mean, and, love and, that. you know, and that's the thing, too. You mentioned Neil Sean. Neil Sean, to me, is one of my top 10 favorite guitar players. And, you know, when you hear the solo for Lights and you hear that tone, that that solo in that song just transcends that song to it takes you to the Bay Area. It takes you to San Francisco. That solo takes you to the Golden Gate Bridge, you know, and it, you feel it and you and you it, it just it, it's just a, a, a solo that just grabs you. I don't know if there's another solo in their catalog that can take you to that place instantly like like a city or a town you know stone love brings back the memories of my childhood but man neil just kills it on that solo and you know i i always liked that period of infinity evolution and what was the other one departure because it still felt like a collective band at that time right it still felt like you know they were all on the same page and they were all making music obviously greg Riley left after departure and jonathan kane made you know came in and then they got a little bit more radio friendly and they were writing songs like Open Arms and Don't Stop Believing and then Faithfully and on and on. But I always look at that period of, you know, infinity and evolution and, you know, even departure as some of Neil's greatest guitar work that really goes unnoticed. I mean, there's some good stuff too on Escaping in Frontiers. Don't get me wrong. I mean, like we just talked about Stone and Love and God was, you know, and some of the deep cuts on Escape too. Um, like Lay It Down, uh, the title track. I mean, he just wails on that stuff. Edge of the Blade on Frontiers. Yeah, but can you imagine being Greg? Like they hire Steve, and you're listening to him every night going, oh my God, dude, I got to get out of here. Like I can't compete with that guy. Like That's like being the guitar player, and you hire Eddie Van Halen. Sooner or later, you're just like, okay, I should just leave. 
uh, I got to go do my own thing. Yeah, you're right. You know, I mean, that's a good point. You know, I mean, I think he kind of knew that Steve was becoming the most powerful voice in the band and what his vision was with Neil seemed to be getting farther and farther away. Um, I think Neil bought into what Steve was trying to do, but as time went on too, I think it wore thin with Neil into what, you know, I think Steve was trying to turn journey into like an R and B flavor type band, you know, um, you know, when you listen to some of the stuff on raised on radio, it's still rock, you know, I mean, you still got girl can't help it. Um, and you still got, uh, God, uh, Suzanne, but I'll be all right without you is, is like an old school Sam and Dave song. Yeah. And I think, you know, Neil's got the, the R and B background, but I think Jonathan Kane, those guys were two peas in a pod, right? He comes out of the babies and he's like, Oh my God, I just went from John Wade to Steve Perry. I can write whatever radio friendly song I want. We're going to have a hit. Pretty much. Right. I mean, that's, I mean, that was the formula. I mean, they were, they were huge. I mean, I don't know if people appreciate how big they were. I mean, it's, it's hard to look at the past when you hear bands from the eighties and you see Van Halen and you see, you know, Motley Crue and all these bands, but journey, at least in the first part of the eighties was right there with Van Halen in terms of popularity. Oh yeah, no doubt. And had longer legs, honestly, because I love Van Halen. Don't get me wrong, but Van Halen at the level that they were partying at and rock does fizzle because what ends up happening, you know, you know, there's a lot of talk about what killed rock, blah, blah. We won't get into that, but basically whatever was cool to me, my younger brother, seven years younger, you've got some brothers that want to emulate their older brother and you got some younger brothers that want to have their own identity. So there's stages of rock that changes. Rock never really goes away, but it changes a little bit. Right. And, um, in these types of situations, you got to be able to go with the flow. You do. And, you know, some bands are good at adapting and some bands aren't. And the ones that do are always the ones that either reinvent themselves or remain popular. You know, um, you know, in Journey, if you look at the evolution of that band, you know, they came in as a, as a prog band, very proggy, very jam band type style into like a... I wouldn't say they were, they were radio friendly at the time, but they were very they were very modern at the time in the mid to late seventies. You know, with that sound that they had, that was comparable to like the Doobie Brothers and Foreigner and you know those bands. And then they just went next level into the eighties, and you know they became one of the greatest rock bands of all time. But you're right about you know Van Halen is that the partying really you know was destructive in a way, and it really you know, hindered them from moving on past that party band image. I mean, even when they were, even when Sammy was in the band, um, they still, they had more of a maturity, but they still had that good time feel to it, right? I mean, they still had, like, Van Halen was always about the good time. Yeah, and that's all good and well. It just doesn't, it doesn't bode well for long-term success. I guess Van Halen has long-term success. Don't get me wrong, but I think when we're dead and gone, our great grandchildren are still going to hear journey songs. I don't know if they're going to hear, why can't this be love? I'm not sure. I disagree because I think Eddie's music and guitar playing is always going to be there, you know, and as you know, his son Wolfgang said last week in an interview that, you know, he's going to be like Mozart. 
100, 200 years from now, they're going to hear him, his playing and his songs. And, you know, they'll appreciate it. They'll teach about his playing and music appreciation classes if there is such a thing. Um, and who knows? But, yeah, I, I disagree with that. I, I understand what you're saying, but um, I think because of Eddie, they'll always have that grasp in the young generation. Yeah, and I think, I guess what I'm trying to say there is it'll be Eddie's face attached to it. With Journey, it'll almost be faceless. Because could you really, like, do most people know what Neil Sean looks like? Yeah, I mean, compared to Eddie, I mean, you know, probably not as much. Right? Could you pick, if Jonathan Cain was walking down the street, would you know? Most people wouldn't, probably. Uh, Right. And they wrote some of the biggest hits of our lifetime. As we moved forward, you know, from Journey and Montrose and, you know, Montrose, I don't want to, you know, anyone to feel like we're diminishing them. They were, they were a big band. Ronnie Montrose is a very influential guitar player and rock candy is still considered a great rock anthem. Um, For whatever reason, the band never hit mainstream like they should, you know, they never, they were never able to sustain the success from that debut album. I don't know the ins and outs of the band, but you know, the debut album is probably one of the best ever, Albums released, you know, as a first release from a, from a band, but you know, Sammy moved on from there and went into a solo career that was very successful. Um, when you think of Three Lock Box and you know Standing Hampton and some of the other albums he had, uh, you know, he came into Van Halen as a very successful solo artist. At the same time, you also had Y&T, and Y&T's trajectory was very similar to Journey, and they started out as very progressive and more of like a jam band. When they were called Yesterday and Today, they changed it to Y&T, released Black Tiger, and completely changed their sound and became a great rock and roll band, a band that should have been huge but never was because they never had the the support from their record label, whether it was A&M or whether it was Geffen. And it's a band that not many people know outside of you know hardcore rock bands that knew that era, but Y&T is a special band. And then you also had Night Ranger, who was a little more, a little years, a few years behind uh, Y&T, and they released the album Dawn Patrol, which featured the song Don't Tell Me What Love Can Do, which was their first song, first hit, first mainstream success. And that featured Brad Gillis, who was the guitar player that filled in for Randy Rhodes after he passed away in a plane crash on the Diary of a Madman tour. So that's kind of how all those bands kind of intersect. But those three artists, Sammy Hagar, Night Ranger, and Y&T, really defined the sound after that and really were was a result of the Doobie Brothers and Hate ashbury and all those influences all tied into one, which spawned those three bands. And three of my favorite bands. They're no doubt. And three very different bands. Right, Y and T, blue collar. It's one of those. If you want to come see us, we're pretty cool. But you know, you don't really have anybody that's got the super big personality. You know, they're a uh, what do they call them uh, in baseball? Uh, the utility player, right? They can do whatever you want, but you're never going to really know who they are. But if you pick up their music, you're going to absolutely love it. Then you got the Sammy Hagar guy who's got the biggest personality room. There's absolutely no doubt. He's a Randy Moss of wide receivers. Everybody knows. He's a Terrell Owens. Everybody knows who he is. And he's out there 
playing live and every interview and he'll talk to anybody and he's just got this larger than life personality goes into Van Halen and just absolutely blows up. I, you would not believe how proud people like me were that same who was joining Van Halen. It was like one of our own has gotten into something that's going to be super huge and put San Francisco on the map kind of thing. Um, and then Night Ranger, can, can you believe, like Brad Gillis, he goes, Ozzy, I, I don't know. I got this new thing going. I'd rather go do that. I don't know if I want to play for you. Like, that's a big risk. That's and it worked balls. out. That is a big set yeah. of brass balls doing that because that was a huge gig at that time. I mean, there were guitar players fighting over that gig. You know, whether you talk about Lynch and you talk about uh, Jakey Lee, and there's many others, too, that wanted that, you know. And I think Lynch had the gig, like, twice. Um, but, yeah, Brad Gillis, another underrated guitar player that doesn't get his due in large part because, you know, those hardcore rock bands, those snobby rock bands that we talked about earlier, don't take Night Ranger serious, which is unfortunate because if you've ever seen Night Ranger live, holy shit, they're awesome. Like, they are awesome. Um, and that's also one of the continuing themes with a lot of these bands that we're talking about, whether it's CCR, whether it's Santana and Journey and the Doobie Brothers and Night Ranger, Y&T, another phenomenal live band. They're all great live. Like, they really work their craft to sound just like it is on the album. I mean, I saw Y&T open for Ace Freely, Freely's Comet, back in, like, 87, 88, and... They were awesome. They were the best band on that bill that also included Faster Pussycat. And Night Ranger, just high energy. Jack Blades is just phenomenal frontman who also plays the bass. And you had the dual guitars with Jeff Watson and Brad Gillis. And a diverse band that could play songs like Rock in America, Don't Tell Me Love Me, and then Sister Christian or the song Goodbye. Just phenomenal band live. Y&T Phenomenals. Hagar I mean, you want to talk? This guy is seventy-one. I want to say, seventy-one years old. Uh, yeah, he might be seventy-four now. I think. Jesus, he freaking nails it. He still can sound. He sounds incredible. I'm actually going to go see him in July at this place in Aurora, Illinois. He's playing with uh, Michael Anthony and I think Jason Bonham. I forget who the uh, the guitar player is. Um, but uh, but yeah, I can't wait to see him. It's been a while since I last saw Sammy. But yeah, it's um, it's amazing how he has the fountain of youth. Maybe it's that tequila that he drinks, but he's got it, man. He has it, and, and he's always had it. And and I get it. it. You know, if there was if there was no David Lee Roth, Sammy Hagar fight, I think a lot more people would love Sammy because there's not really a lot to hate on Sammy. Now, the problem is a lot more people wouldn't know Sammy if it wasn't for Van Halen. So, you know, that changes the trajectory of who he is. Um, the guy's a bigger businessman than he is a musician. I think we all know that. And he gets to, he basically got to write his own story. Like, yeah, he paid his dues, et cetera. But man, the minute 86 hits and he's in Van Halen, the rest of his life, he gets to write the ticket he wants to write. He gets to do whatever he wants to do the rest of his musician life, which has been the last 35 years. Yeah. I mean, he's not slowing down either. You know, I mean, he does his TV show he has. I think it's on the road with their backstage with Sammy Hager or something like that. 
and he does these tours. I mean, it's almost like he sits around with Michael Anthony. Eh, how many shows do you want to do this year? All right, let's do this. You want to go make an album? All right, let's go make an album. It's very fluid, right? It's not like it's it's structured or anything like that. I mean, if they do whatever they feel like doing, and I'm glad that Sammy and Michael can carry on the Van Halen name. You know, obviously Eddie Van Halen passed. I don't know if we'll ever see Alex play on stage again. I mean, that's a a big question. Wolfie's doing his own thing and developing his own sound, which he should, but it's really going to be left up to Sammy and, and, and Michael to carry on that legacy of that band. Um, you know, Dave Lee Roth is Dave Lee Roth, and he's not, you know, he's never was good live, but he has really taken, you know, a beating in terms of his performances over the last few years, especially when he did the Vegas show and when he was with Kiss on the Kiss tour. But those guys still got it, and like you're, you're right, you know, Sammy basically guided his own path once he was in Van Halen. Um, he basically took a chance and was allowed to take a chance to on, on a few business ventures that you know basically were lotto tickets. Uh, but you got You have to say that Sammy is the way better singer than Dave Lee Roth and Ted Templeman, who produced the first Montrose album almost replaced David Lee Roth during the sessions for Van Halen one with Sammy Hagar. So that's a, you know, an interesting backstory that there was a very good chance that we never would be able to compare David Lee Roth to Sammy because it could have all been Sammy. It wasn't. And history played itself out like it was supposed to, but it very well could have been Sammy Hagar on Van Halen one. And you were talking about live chops with some of these guys, the live chops. And I, and I think every band around the States works hard. Don't get me wrong. But when you're living here, like Y and T is playing a 200, uh, 200 seat club in Livermore, then playing a 200 seat club in Berkeley, then playing a 200 seat club in Modesto, then in Sacramento. And then in the city, they could just play a theater, play one show. And, seat a thousand people there's no reason and all these people would drive to see them but they'll come to you that's that's working hard right so they're coming to you they're playing five nights where they can really just play one and be done with it dave's no spring chicken either night ranger same thing dude they will play the arena when they're playing with def leopard they will play the asparagus festival just so they could say they played it and then go play the corn festival just so they can say they played it like they just play to play to stay tight. And the beauty about living here is you get to see that all the time. So then when I see them on the Monsters of Rock Cruise and everybody's like in awe of what a great live band they're I'm like, guys, they're like this all the time. They practice constantly. It is sad that the original Y&T is, is no longer around. Outside of Dave Menachetti, you know, you think of Leonard Hayes, you think of Philip Kenmore, you know, Joey Alves. You know, that was a great tight lineup. And it's it's disappointing that we'll never be able to see that again because when those guys are playing, and I'll you know Leonard Hayes was a, was a, was a great drummer as well as Jimmy DeGrasso. Jimmy DeGrasso, I think the last time we heard of him, he was in Rat. I know he did some stuff with Megadeth. He was also a phenomenal drummer too as well. He was on the Contagious album, uh, which is one of my favorite Y and T albums. But yeah, you're right. I mean, all those bands really just kick ass live and. You know, as we as we head into kind of the final band, you know, the the band named Metallica, which went out to San Francisco 
because of they didn't really agree with what was happening in LA and Hollywood. They they carved their own path. They started their own movement in San Francisco. I talked about history and how what Sammy Hagar, Hagar could have been in Van Halen. The history of Metallica could have been forever changed had they stayed in LA. Maybe they didn't get recognized. Maybe they weren't able to push through. Maybe the thrash movement never happens in the way we know it. Because if they stayed in LA, they would have never been able to punch through and get through, you know, beyond bands like Motley Crue and Rat and all those ones I've mentioned. It was smart for them to do it because they were able to kind of play and create their own sound and make themselves this live entity that's just enormous and awesome at the same time. Yeah, it's, you know, you've heard the thing, you know, a small fish in a big pond. This was just a different fish in that pond. And there's so many bands that are unlike them in L.A. that if they would have hit, it would have been big there, but it would have been very uh, low percentage shot that they would have hit because they would have had to, somehow swim through everything that was going on there. Yeah. You come here, it's here for the taking. And I'm telling you 1986, I'm a senior in high school. There's so many Metallica shirts. It is unbelievable. If you, if you are from here and you're not a Metallica fan, we just kind of basically kick you out of here. Now I'm not the biggest Metallica fan. Like I'm more of a master of puppets, uh, black album. Those are my two favorite albums. I like songs from some of the other albums, but I am not a diehard Metallica fan. It wouldn't make my top 20, but there's no doubt in the, the power that was Metallica in the mid eighties here. And you could feel, you know, black, the black album, put them over the top here. They were already Kings. So by the time the black album comes, we're like, well, yeah, of course we know Metallica dude. They've been here forever. Metallica was a band that was very underground. And I think that added to the excitement and the lore of them in the beginning, where they were the, this underground band creating this underground movement with them and Anthrax and Slayer and Megadeth and Exodus and Testament. All these bands were coming up, and as the glam era started to get out of control, where bands started to sound exactly the same and look exactly the same, and bands started to get signed because of how they looked, how they're how their uh, you know, singer was able to do the pouty lips in a video or on stage or how many girls you know, were going after them. That's how they were getting signed by, is because of that. And I think as anything does end and the death of glam metal does happen, it's because they killed itself, right? I mean, it was basically like a suicide. You know, they kept, and of course it was basically run and, and, and steered by the, by the record companies. The record companies just kept asking more and more and more, please, please, please. And bands like XYZ and Hurricane Alice and you name it, they're like, you know, you go to the, you go pick up Metal Edge and or Hip Parader or Circus Magazine and you'd see these bands who you had not seen on MTV yet or you had not heard on the radio and you were like, who are these guys? I've never heard them, which was different because you always knew the bands that they were writing about. And then this movement started, this thrash movement started that was completely different that was the beginning of the death of glam metal because it just got way too out of control and just way too saturated. Yeah. Metallica was to that melodic metal movement that like gangster rap was to like hip hop, right? It was the aggressive side, like come fight with us. 
we're angry too. We're not depressed. We want to go punch people. We don't want to get, we want to drink beers, but we want to punch people afterwards. We don't want to like go do heroin. Right. And I think that aggression really set in well with the fan base. And that's how the fan base grew. So, so big and man, songs like master of puppets, dude, I can listen to master of puppets, that album anytime, no matter what mood I'm in. And it will, my heart will be absolute pumping after that. Listen, and there's just not a lot of albums that do, do that for me. You could say that Van Halen one came in 78 and changed the style, changed the game. And even though it wasn't their debut album, Master of Puppets did the same thing too. Because I still remember hearing that radio station I talked about earlier, WVVX RPM, when they played Master of Puppets in its entirety. And it was at night, it was during the week, it was after dinner, I was supposed to be doing my homework. And I remember listening to that album and thinking to myself, what is going on? This is, this is like nothing I've ever heard before. What, what is happening? And it just spawned that movement and it changed the, the, the face of rock, rock music. And I don't think it, it, it changed overnight. There was still some time where it was still developing and kind of going away from that sound that we all knew in, in 1986, but it was the first step because if you look at their next album and justice for all, and then the big album, the black album in the early 90s, which just kind of blew the doors off their career. And like you said with Sammy Hagar, they were able to write their own ticket from here on out and do whatever they wanted, go wherever they wanted, play wherever they wanted to play. It really opened the doors. It really brought them into the mainstream. And I know hardcore Metallica fans don't like that album. But Metallica, if they wanted to remain successful and be the band and be the name that they are today, you know, considered in the realm of Zeppelin and the Stones and and the big bands like ACDC, if they keep making albums like Injustice for All and Master of Puppets, they never reach the height of their popularity. They remain stagnant. They 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 never go beyond what they what they became. The Black Album it's very hooky. Um, the songs are a lot shorter. It's still the essence of Metallica. I know it's not, you know, the, the, the master of puppets or the seek and destroys or the four horsemen or the whiplashes, but that is the album that defined a generation. Yeah. And all this, we haven't talked about it yet, but Bill Graham was huge here, right? Because he had all the venue connections and he was the guy that was like, all right, we're going to put on day in the green. And Metallica is going to headline anyone, anybody want to come and people would come out of the woodwork all over the States. and want to be part of day on the green, right? So Bill Graham really appreciated the music that was coming out of the Bay area and wanted to make sure that the Bay area was heard. And, uh, he really helped a lot of these bands out. Yeah. That's one thing that we haven't talked about is the day on the green festivals, because when you look back at rock and roll history, you know, you look at Robert Plant with, you know, with the dove in his hand, which was on the day, which was at the day on the green. You look at the, was that the American debut for ACDC on the day on the green? I don't know if it was, but it was very early on in their career, which they played. There were so many bands that took that stage and it's, it's a forgotten moment because they, that was a festival every year that would just bring out the best of the best. Yeah, it ran from basically 73 to, I think, 92, and then it had one uh, a little bit later, I think in 99 maybe. 
But, uh, you know, to give you an idea of, let's see, let's pick one here. Uh, give you an idea of 87. 87, the first day was Dylan and the Grateful Dead. The second day was Motley Crue, Whitesnake, Poison, Jet Boy. The third day was you, you 2 the Pretenders, the Bodines, and the Soup Dragons. Right? Like, I, you know, not, I don't love all those bands, but you know what? Those are some big bands. 1989, which was Grateful Dead, Tracy Chapman, John Fogarty, Los Lobos, Joe Satriani, Tower of Power. Then Day of the Green 1 and 2 was The Who. Day on the Green 3 and 4 was The Stones, Living Color, Guns N' Roses was supposed to play, and they didn't perform. That's so amazing. it's like, yeah. yeah. It, it, so just the, the 91, Metallica, Queensryche, Faith No More, Soundgarden. Like, that's huge in 91. When you look back, I mean, you're from that that area, and you mentioned how what it was like to see these bands rise and be popular and you know it was kind of almost like a bubble where you know there was northern california all these bands and there was the rest of the world how would you define the music that's come out of that area uh the stuff i was listening to was fun uh you know it was sex drugs and rock and roll but it was more sex and rock and roll than it was probably drugs. I'm sure there was tons of drugs and blah, 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 and all that. But it, it felt more like a, a, uh, a growing up from the seventies into the eighties with that kind of a feel of rock. So when we talk about CC, CCR and the Doobie brothers and that kind of thing, like these guys kind of took it to the next level and it felt mature. And then when you heard stuff from other parts, uh, of the States, you would go, okay, that's catchy. Some of that's okay. That's kind of amateurish maybe. And uh, I guess we kind of got snobby. I guess I got snobby too, because I'm like, well, I, I, I got folks that are writing stuff here. That is a lot better than some of the stuff that I'm hearing somewhere else. But I think that has to do more with, we're getting pounded with it here, right? Just like LA was getting pounded with sleeve. You couldn't go to a party without some sleeves band playing the party, right? Same deal here. So I think it was what I was kind of fed almost, but I don't mind it at all because it is some of my favorite music of all time. But it really just kind of seemed like 70s-esque going and growing instead of kind of this new movement, if it makes sense. It had it did pay you know tribute to what came before them as well. I mean, you could really hear that in the music more so than you could – from the Southern California bands, right? I mean, the Southern California bands were kind of, I don't want to say forgetting, you know, the past, but when you looked at Rat and you looked at Quiet Riot, you know, that you could see Slade and you could see Sweet and some of their stuff and, you know, Motley Crue with the getup. It was very, though, it was different. It was going down a different path. When you looked at the bands in Northern California, whether it was Journey or Y&T or Night Ranger, Hagar, Montrose, all those bands, you know, they were they were not about the image. It was more about the music. You know, I mean, look at Metallica, jeans and jean jackets, right, and black T-shirts. You know, I mean, that in itself is an image, but, you know, that was never, I think they were more concerned about the song and the performance and the music than they were about selecting what to wear on stage and kind of having this theme as to what they look like. You know, I mean... Metallica looked like they just, you know, came out of high school wearing the same stuff and just popped up on stage and started playing. You know, I mean, 
you know, yes, Y and T and Night Ranger, you know, of course had the leather pants, but it wasn't it wasn't overly done. It wasn't accentuated like it was with the glam rock bands in the Southern Cal. And think about how many stories you've heard about bands in other parts of the state, just like a poison from Pennsylvania. Oh, we got to get to LA if we're going to do something. It, I don't think I ever heard any of those bands say, we got to get to San Francisco so we can do something. You know, when we talk about the bands, we always talk about the British movement and we talk about the LA bands and we talk about Southern rock and, you know, the bands that came out of, out of New York and, and all that, how New York was, you know, the Mecca for music for a long period of time. But I still think the Northern California music, starting with Haight-Ashbury, Monterey Pop, and Ultimate, Day on the Green, as we talked about, you know, the the CCRs and all the bands that came through there up until, you know, through the 70s and 80s and 90s. It's, a, it's an area of music, it's a style of music that does not, this does not get talked about enough. It's unfortunate, but, you know, when you think about Journey, you know, it's it's basically a, a you know, a band that, you know, is going to be 80% female, you know, over 40 usually in the odds, which is nothing wrong with that. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, it, it's it's not, you know, it, it, they always say that, you know, a lot of, the, you know, Journey's music doesn't have any edge or those bands don't have any edge. Metallica, of course, did. But I disagree. I mean, if you hear Montrose, there's an edge to that music. When you hear Journey, especially Infinity and Evolution, Neil Sean's guitar playing. There's an edge to that stuff. Y&T, Night Ranger, Hagar, you know, um, the song Heavy Metal. That doesn't have any edge? Come on, what are you talking about? I just think that it's, for whatever reason, it's not It's not given its proper due. Yeah, and I would say to the listeners, if uh, they're talking about Hagar, I hate Hagar, just go give VOA a chance. Just go listen to VOA in its entirety. It's like 35 minutes of your life. I guarantee you will at least love half of it. If you've never heard Y&T, go give Black Tiger a chance. I guarantee you'll love at least half of it. You just haven't really heard it. I would say instead of VOA, go listen to Standing Hampton by Hagar. Yeah, I like Standing Hampton. Uh, to me, well, VOA I like better, but it, it seems to have a little more mass appeal just because there's a couple of more recognizable songs there. Yeah. But uh, Standing Hampton is a good album, too. I love, yeah, Standing Hampton is my favorite from Hagar. My favorite from Y&T, I love Black Tiger, I love Mean Streak, but I got to go down for the count just because that was the first album I got that was Y&T. Um, and Night Ranger, I love Down Patrol. I, I, can, I can go on forever about that stuff. I just love, I love that whole period of music, the whole era, the area that it came from. Um, just some great bands and some great music that people need to really dive into and appreciate more. Yeah, it was, uh, I was lucky, man. I grew up in an area that had all that. Um, I don't know how my musical taste and life changes if I don't have that around me. I still wouldn't like revelations, but, uh, you know, maybe it changes a little bit. <sighs> you know what? It's, 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 <laughs> everyone's got their flaws, Sonny. Everyone's got their flaws. <laughs> I, I still, I still can't remember. I still can't believe your comments about revelations by Iron Maiden. I, I just, I, I, that's the thing for those listening. Whenever Sonny talks about songs, you instantly want to throw things because <laughs> when, when he, when he talks about like revelations or some other stuff that he's talked about, you're like, what are you talking about, man? I forget what it was a few weeks ago or maybe like a month or two ago. We used, we're talking about an album on the, on the live shows with, uh, 
Zeus and Tom and uh, I forget what it was. I, I was just dumbfounded. I'm like, what are you? How can you say that? Forget. It's gonna kill me to find out what album it was. But I know you're a big White Snake fan. They just were. They just announced their uh, their farewell tour. Yeah, I heard. I heard. So we'll see uh, if they come around here because although the COVID thing's all been lifted here. Uh, California dates haven't been prudent yet because not all the bands knew what was going to happen here. Uh, the mask mandate just went away uh, three days ago as we're recording this. So I'm hoping to come around. You know, Dave, Dave is, uh, he's lost a step. He hasn't lost a step in his stage presence. The voice, you know, he, uh, he doesn't hit all the notes he used to. He's also, you know, 40 years older than he was. Uh, but the energy of a White Snake show has n- not ever been light. And he's got two great guitar players. And that music is just about as much as the melody as it is about the guitar playing to me. Well, it's also, too, about that underlying sexiness, too. I mean, when you listen to their music, even their old stuff from like Love Hunter and Trouble and Saints and Sinners, it's got that element of sexiness to it, right? I mean, it's it just it oozes sex from the speakers. It really does. I mean, and then they started to put the visual together. You know, with Tawny Katane, you know, rest in peace. But they were they were a band that really, you know, took that Led Zeppelin influence of that sexiness and some of the Zeppelin stuff and really expounded on it and really went after it. Yeah, love me some White Snake for sure. I love the old stuff too. You know, I mean the the stuff that's pretty much forgotten by a lot of fans. I love it when they were just an old school blues based rock band. They were they had some great stuff. Yeah, I like uh, the Coverdale Deep Purple stuff too. Uh, but, you know, too. my bang yeah. zone, yeah, my bang zone really is though, Slide It In, 87, Slip of the Tongue. Those three albums, oh my God, I have played them on repeat my whole life. I agree with you up until Slip of the Tongue. Slip of the Tongue for me just didn't grab me. I didn't like Vi's style with Coverdale's voice. It just, it didn't feel right to me, um, especially coming from someone like John Sykes, who was just a powerhouse and just could fill fill that open space with just that tone and that style. Vi, you know, is a great guitar player, but I just don't think he fit well with Whitesnake. Yeah, I gave him a break because uh, he had just come out of David Lee Ross band and I remember seeing them live and I'm like, oh my God, these two are amazing together. And uh, I, I love Vi's guitar playing. And uh, yeah, so the Slip and Tongue isn't my favorite White Snake album, but those three albums put together, oh my God, that is the bang zone of my White Snake for sure. Well, Sonny, it's been a blast, man. I appreciate it. It's been a while since you've been on. I think the last time you were on, we talked about Y&T. Got back at the end of 2019. So it's good to have you back. Thanks for doing this. Uh, thanks for the invite. Always love to hang. And man, I can talk music all day. You kidding me? I know you can. That's why I thought you were perfect for this episode. So thank you again for doing it. Thanks for the invite. And uh, thanks for listening. Tell everybody where they can find you. Uh, I'm easy to find. Growinguprock.com is probably the easiest way. So G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K.com. Uh, Podcast Rock City. We do a live show every Sunday. And uh, we're, we're everywhere you can get a podcast. So, And I'm on Twitter and Facebook, too. So I'm pretty easy to find. Awesome. For everybody, that's Sonny Pooney. Go check him out on Grown Up Rock, Podcast Rock City. He is the man. I am Jay Scott. This is The Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Have a happy Father's Day to all the rock and little dads out there. And we will talk again soon. Thank you. Thank you.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 